Section 7 of Best Dog Stories. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Amber Rose. Section 7 Brown Wolf by Jack London. Footsore and famished, Brown Wolf drifted in mysteriously out of nowhere to the little mountain cottage of Walt and Mage Irvine in California. The dog ran away, always toward the north, whenever Walt Irvine untied him. Each time, Brown Wolf was captured and brought back. After a futile year of flight, he accepted the inevitable and decided to remain with the Irvines. Even after this decision, a long time elapsed before either Walt or Mage Irvine could win his friendship. Then, Skiff Miller of the Klondike stopped one day at the Irvines on his way to his sister's cottage. We'd like to hear you tell about the Klondike, Mage said. Mayn't we come over some day while you are at your sister's? Or better yet, won't you come over and have dinner with us? Yes, and thank you, ma'am, he mumbled mechanically. Then he caught himself up and added, I ain't stopping long got to be pulling north again. I go out on tonight's train. You see, I've got a mail contract with the government. When Mage had said that it was too bad, he made another futile effort to go, but he could not take his eyes from her face. He forgot his embarrassment and his admiration, and it was her turn to flush and feel uncomfortable. It was at this juncture, when Walt had just decided it was time for him to be saying something to relieve the strain, that Wolf, who had been away nosing through the bush, trotted wolf-like into view. Skiff Miller's abstraction disappeared. The pretty woman before him passed out of his field of vision. He had eyes only for the dog, and a great wonder came into his face. Well, I'll be, he enunciated slowly and solemnly. He sat down ponderingly on the log, leaving Madge standing. At the sound of his voice, Wolf's ears had flattened down, then his mouth had opened in a laugh. He trotted slowly up to the stranger, and first smelled his hands, then licked them with his tongue. Skiff Miller patted the dog's head, and slowly and solemnly repeated, "'Well, I'll be.' "'Excuse me, ma'am,' he said the next moment. "'I was just surprised some. That was all. "'We're surprised, too,' she answered lightly. "'We never saw Wolf make up to a stranger before. "'Is that what you call him? Wolf?' the man asked." Madge nodded. But I can't understand his friendliness towards you, unless it's because you're from the Klondike. He's a Klondike dog, you know. Yes, and Miller said absently. He lifted one of Wolf's forelegs and examined the footpaws, pressing them and denting them with his thumb. Kind of soft, he remarked. He ain't been on a trail for a long time. I say, Walt broke in. It is remarkable the way he lets you handle him. Skiff Miller arose, no longer awkward with the admiration of Mage, and in a sharp, business-like manner he asked, "'How long have you had him?' But just then the dog, squirming and rubbing against the newcomer's legs, opened his mouth and barked. It was an explosive bark, brief and joyous, but a bark. "'That's a new one on me,' Skiff Miller remarked. Walt and Mage stared at each other. The miracle had happened. Wolf had barked.' It's the first time he ever barked, Madge said. First time I ever heard him, too, Miller volunteered. Madge smiled at him. The man was evidently a humorist. Of course, she said, since you have only seen him for five minutes. 
Skiff Miller looked at her sharply, seeking in her face the guile her words had led him to suspect. "'I thought you understood,' he said slowly. "'I thought you'd tumbled to it from his making up to me. He's my dog. His name ain't Wolf. It's Brown.' "'Oh, Walt!' was Mage's instinctive cry to her husband. Walt was on the defensive at once. "'How do you know he's your dog?' he demanded. "'Because he is,' was the reply." "'Mere assertion,' Walt said sharply. In his slow and pondering way, Skiff Miller looked at him, then asked, with a nod of his head toward Mage, "'How'd you know she's your wife? You just say, because she is, and I'll say it's mere assertion. The dog's mine. I bred him and raised him, and I guess I ought to know. Look here, I'll prove it to you.' Skiff Miller turned to the dog. "'Brown!' His voice rang out sharply and at the sound the dog's ears flattened down as to a caress. Gee! The dog made a swinging turn to the right. Now mush on! And the dog ceased his swinging abruptly and started straight ahead, halting obediently at command. I can do it with whistles, Skiff Miller said proudly. He was my lead dog. But you are not going to take him away with you, Madge asked tremulously. The man nodded. Back into that awful Klondike world of suffering? He nodded and added, Oh, it ain't so bad as all that. Look at me. Pretty healthy specimen, ain't I? But the dogs, the terrible hardship, the heartbreaking toil, the starvation, the frost. Oh, I've read about it, and I know. I nearly ate him once, over on Little Fish River, Miller volunteered grimly. If I hadn't got a moose that day, it was all that saved him. I'd have died first, Mage cried. Things is different down here, Miller explained. You don't have to eat dogs. You think different just about the time you're all in. You've never been all in, so you don't know anything about it. That's the very point, she argued warmly. Dogs are not eaten in California. Why not leave him here? He is happy. He'll never want for food. You know that. He'll never suffer from cold and hardship. Here all is softness and gentleness. Neither the human nor nature is savage. He will never know a whiplash again. And as for the weather, why, it never snows here. But it's all fired hot in summer, begging your pardon, Skiff Miller laughed. But you do not answer, Mage continued passionately. What have you to offer him in that Northland life? Grub, when I've got it, and that's most of the time, came the answer. And the rest of the time? No grub. And the work? Yes, plenty of work, Miller blurted out impatiently. Work without end, and famine, and frost, and all the rest of the miseries. That's what he'll get when he comes with me. But he likes it. He is used to it. He knows that life. He was born to it and brought up to it. And you don't know anything about it. You don't know what you're talking about. That's where the dog belongs, and that's where he'll be happiest. Maybe the dog has some choice in the matter, Mage went on. Maybe he has his likes and desires. You have not considered him. You give him no choice. It has never entered your mind that possibly he might prefer California to Alaska. You consider only what you like. You do with him as you would with a sack of potatoes or a bale of hay. This was a new way of looking at it, and Miller was visibly impressed as he debated it in his mind. Mage took advantage of his indecision. If you really love him... What would be happiness to him would be your happiness also, she urged. Skiff Miller continued to debate with himself, 
and Maine stole a glance of exultation to her husband, who looked back warm approval. "'What do you think?' the Klondiker suddenly demanded. It was her turn to be puzzled. "'What do you mean?' she asked. "'Do you think he'd sooner stay in California?' She nodded her head with positiveness. "'I am sure of it.' Skiff Miller again debated with himself, though this time aloud, the same time running his gaze in a judicial way over the mooted animal. He was a good worker. He's done a heap of work for me. He never loafed on me, and he was a Joe Dandy at hammering a raw team into shape. He's got a head on. He can do everything but talk. He knows what you say to him. Look at him now. He knows we're talking about him. The dog was laying at Skiff Miller's feet, head close down on paws, ears erect and listening, and eyes that were quick and eager to follow the sound of speech as it fell from the lips of first one and then the other. And there's a lot of work in him yet. He's good for years to come, and I do like him. Once or twice after that, Skiff Miller opened his mouth and closed it again without speaking. Finally, he said, I'll tell you what I'll do. Your remarks, ma'am, has some weight in them. The dog's worked hard, and maybe he's earned a soft berth and has got a right to choose. Anyway, we'll leave it up to him. Whatever he says goes. You people stay right here settin' down. I'll say goodbye and walk off casual-like. If he wants to stay, he can stay. If he wants to come with me, let him come. I won't call him to come, and don't you call him to come back. Well, then, I might as well be gettin' along, Skiff Miller said in the ordinary tones of one departing. At this change in his voice, Wolf lifted his head quickly and still more quickly got to his feet when the man and woman shook hands. He sprang up on his hind legs, resting his forepaws on her hip, and at the same time licking Skiff Miller's hand. When the latter shook hands with Walt, Wolf repeated his act, resting his weight on Walt and licking both men's hands. "'It ain't no picnic, I can tell you that,' were the Klondiker's last words as he turned and went slowly up the trail." For the distance of twenty feet, Wolf watched him go, himself all eagerness and expectancy, as though waiting for the man to turn and retrace his steps. Then, with a quick, low whine, Wolf sprang after him, overtook him, caught his hand between his teeth with reluctant tenderness, and strove gently to make him pause. Failing in this, Wolf raced back to where Walt Irvine sat, catching his coat sleeve in his teeth and trying vainly to drag him after the retreating man. Wolf's perturbation began to wax. He desired ubiquity. He wanted to be in two places at the same time, with the old master and the new, and steadily the distance between them was increasing. He sprang about excitedly, making short, nervous leaps and twists, now toward one, now toward the other, in painful indecision, not knowing his own mind, desiring both and unable to choose, uttering quick, sharp whines and beginning to pant. He sat down abruptly on his haunches, thrusting his nose upward, the mouth opening and closing with jerking movements, each time opening wider. These jerking movements were in unison with the recurrent spasms that attacked the throat, each spasm severer and more intense than the preceding one, and in accord with jerks and spasms the larynx began to vibrate, at first silently, accompanied by the rush of air expelled from the lungs, then sounding a low, deep note, the lowest in the register of the human ear, 
All this was the nervous and muscular preliminary to howling. But just as the howl was on the verge of bursting from the full throat, the wide-open mouth was closed. The paroxysms ceased, and he looked long and steadily at the retreating man. Suddenly, Wolf turned his head and over his shoulder just as steadily regarded Walt. The appeal was unanswered. Not a word nor a sign did the dog receive. No suggestion and no clue as to what his conduct should be. A glance ahead to where the old master was nearing the curve of the trail excited him again. He sprang to his feet with a whine, and then, struck by a new idea, turned his attention to Mage. Hitherto he had ignored her, but now, both masters failing him, she alone was left. He went over to her and snuggled his head in her lap, nudging her arm with his nose, an old trick of his when begging for favors. He backed away from her and began writhing and twisting playfully, curvetting and prancing, half-rearing and striking his forepaws to the earth, struggling with all his body, from the wheedling eyes and flattening ears to the wagging tail, to express the thought that was in him and that was denied him utterance. This, too, he soon abandoned. He was depressed by the coldness of these humans who had never been cold before. No response could he draw from them. No help could he get. They did not consider him. They were as dead. He turned and silently gazed after the old master. Skiff Miller was rounding the curve. In a moment he would be gone from view. Yet he never turned his head, plodding straight onward, slowly and methodically, as though possessed of no interest in what was occurring behind his back. And in this fashion he went out of view. Wolf waited for him to reappear. He waited a long minute, silently, quietly, without movement, as though turned to stone, withal stone quick with eagerness and desire. He barked once and waited. Then he turned and trotted back to Walt Irvine. He sniffed his hand and dropped down heavily at his feet, watching the trail where it curved emptily from view. The tiny stream slipping down the mossy-lipped stone seemed suddenly to increase the volume of its gurgling noise. Save for the meadow larks, there was no other sound. The great yellow butterflies drifted silently through the sunshine and lost themselves in the drowsy shadows. Mage gazed triumphantly at her husband. A few minutes later, Wolf got upon his feet. Decision and deliberation marked his movements. He did not glance at the man and woman. His eyes were fixed up the trail. He had made up his mind. They knew it. And they knew, so far as they were concerned, that the ordeal had just begun. He broke into a trot, and Mage's lips pursed, forming an avenue for the caressing sound that it was the will of her to send forth. But the caressing sound was not made. She was impelled to look at her husband, and she saw the sternness with which he watched her. The pursed lips relaxed, and she sighed inaudibly. Wolf's trot broke into a run. Wider and wider were the leaps he made. Not once did he turn his head, his wolf's brush standing out straight behind him. He cut sharply across the curve of the trail and was gone. End of section 7